So then you've got a patient in shock. Um, hemodynamically, what are you going to do for these patients? Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the November 6th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are discuss analgesia, sedation, neuromuscular blockade management in the COVID-19 population, and discuss shock and hemodynamic management in the COVID-19 patient population. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer and in kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. This is a continuation of last week's episode on the management of critically ill COVID patients with Aaron Berry, a nurse clinician at Johns Hopkins. Please watch the October 30th episode for information on intubation and ventilator management. So then going along with the whole, the whole breathing, the B part is you've got them on the vent. Now, how do you keep them comfortable on the vent and let the vent do the work for them? So um, analgesia and sedation, every critical care nurse is super familiar with that. It's kind of bread and butter stuff for our ventilated patients, but then also adding in the neuromuscular blockade, which you do see, um, but we're seeing a little bit more now. So with the analgesia and sedation, and I think everybody who's worked with a critical care patient that has COVID now, we're seeing just really unusually high doses required to get the effect that we're looking for, keeping them synchronous with the vent, keeping them comfortable. There's a lot of different thoughts on why there are some younger people that we're seeing that are getting this COVID ARDS. A lot of them are in relatively good health beforehand. Uh, they have the super high respiratory drive. And then there's also this um, super inflammatory response that could be playing a role. So again, we're looking for getting that vent synchrony. And then there's also the risk for self-extubation of these patients, I think, is a little bit more concerning than with your average patient, because if you self-extubate and they're not ready, now you have an emergent intubation, which is an infection control problem because you, you haven't been able to plan. Things need to move a little bit faster, and you're maybe not prepared as well as you would be for uh, a planned intubation. And then just because... These patients are in negative pressure rooms and all the PPE that's required when you have a self-extubation. Two years ago, back before COVID, and it's a non-infectious patient, you're able to just kind of run in the room and, and mitigate what has happened. But 
that it's not the same now. So the risk for self-extubation is a little bit higher. And especially some of these units that were being used for ICUs now, they weren't designed for ICUs. So they may have uh, not like the clear glass doors where you can see through easy. It might be a door that shuts and you've got to keep the door shut because COVID and you may not be hearing things as well. So it's keeping them sedated and keeping them comfortable is, is incredibly important, not only for vent management, but just the way that COVID has caused us to have to respond to these patients, putting them in places they normally may not be and having to be able to gown up and and do things to get into the room. And then these patients are often requiring super long-term sedation and analgesia infusions, which can cause uh, a number of complications. You can accumulate the drug in your system. You can start to see tolerance and requiring higher doses. You can um, develop dependence, which will become a problem when you're weaning. And then you can see things like delirium or psychosis from the sedation and analgesia. And a lot of you have seen propofol is not a great long-term drug because you can have an elevation in your triglycerides, which can affect your pancreas. So now you're creating a whole bunch of new problems. So neuromuscular blockade, a lot of times these patients were seeing these super high peak pressures, super high plateau pressures. We're just not able to effectively ventilate the, the way that we need to. So we're using um, neuromuscular blockade or paralytics. And with the neuromuscular blockade and paralytics, um, it's, it's the same as before when you're paralyzing these patients, you have to make sure the sedation is where it needs to be, which is really hard to assess once you've done neuromuscular blockade. So um, neuromonitoring, like EEG uh, and uh, BIS monitors is what I've been seeing a lot of on these patients because there's only so much EEG, but the BIS monitor, it's like this little sticker and you're able to monitor the patient to see how sedated they are on a scale of like zero to 100, 100 being awake, zero being unresponsive, just to try and make sure that you've maintained sedation while they're paralyzed. So then another interesting thing that's happened with COVID is all these medication shortages that we've seen, um, the typical combo that you would regularly see would be propofol fentanyl for sedation and analgesia, but now there's a fentanyl shortage. So you're seeing things like Dilaudid drips added in, and it's um, it's just been a little bit different. Um, and some people have even had to dust off um, barbiturates because there's just no other option because of these shortages. Um, One thing that I found super interesting while looking up some stuff for this is the use of inhaled agents like they do in the OR. It offers a ton of uh, positive benefits for these patients. It has an anti-inflammatory effect. It can lower your airway resistance. It can dilate pulmonary vascular beds. Um, And it's a pulmonary clearance. So if you have kidney dysfunction and liver dysfunction, you don't have to worry about them clearing that agent. There are some downsides to it. It's not something that's typically done in a critical care setting. Um, So you're going to need some training. You need the right equipment. You can use an anesthesia machine, which is what people are used to seeing. But there's also inline vaporizers that work a little bit better for this because these patients do have such high respiratory rates. The anesthesia machine is not quite used to doing like the sick patient, like your septic patient that needs really high respiratory rates. Some other things to consider is you have to have uh, gas scavenging equipment because these inhaled agents can, they could go out to the room and then people could be exposed to them. And then you have to have entitled gas monitoring to monitoring what's going in and what's going out of these patients for the inhaled agents that you're giving. And then you also still need analgesia on top of that. 
but another benefit is it does have some mild muscle relaxation properties. So you might be able to back off a little bit on the neuromuscular blockade, but there, there's obviously some challenges to using this as you need people that are trained on doing it and having the appropriate equipment, but it's a good option for when you don't have the medications that you're used to using. And then so see circulation. So shock in the COVID patient, you can see all the different types of shock in the COVID patient. Just kind of wanted to run through like specifically to the COVID patient, what types of pathophysiology are you going to see to give the, the standard types of shock? So commonly you'll see a distributive shock in these patients. Um, you'll see that from sepsis, either from the COVID itself or co-infections like co-bacterial infections. And then there's that cytokine storm that you're seeing. So you're having this hyper-inflammatory response. So you're having kind of like this Cersei picture that's creating this distributive shock in your COVID patient. You can also see a cardiogenic shock that's pretty common in these patients because you're seeing acute cardiac injuries. So you're seeing like a myocarditis from the viral infection. You could be seeing things like STEMIs because of coagulopathy. You could be seeing stress-induced cardiomyopathy in these patients and maybe some demand ischemia. So cardiac injury has been super common in these patients, which is why we're doing a lot of the labs that we're doing to look to see if there's been cardiac dysfunction. And then there's always the risk in ARDS. A lot of times you'll see the, the right ventricular go into failure, uh, which will lead to a cardiogenic shock. And then obstructive shock, you're going to see things like PE because they're hypercoagulopathic. You're going to, you're going to see them throw those clots into their lungs. Um, hyperinflation is a definite risk, especially for patients that are on high respiratory rates, making sure that they have like that longer expiratory time so you're not constantly, so they can get all the air out that you've put in. Um, another common cause of obstructive shocks in these patients would be pneumos from uh, some of these patients need some pretty high pressures to be able to open things up. And sometimes when you have that high pressure ventilation, you're going to be seeing pneumos. And then another one that you could possibly see in these patients is hypovolemic shock. These patients are febrile. Some of them have diarrhea. So there could be lots of volume loss. You could definitely see a hypovolemic shock with these types of patients. So then you've got a patient in shock. Um, hemodynamically, what are you going to do for these patients? A lot of the literature is saying you can set your hemodynamic goals to 60 to 65, which is pretty standard for, for a shock patient is managing to a, um, a MAP of 65. The one thing that is possibly a little bit different with these patients is the fluid resuscitation. It's starting to look like a conservative as opposed to a liberal fluid resuscitation is going to be better for these patients. Obviously, you're going to want to assess the patient to see what their fluid status is. Um, you're going to look at things like blood pressure, CVP, um, cap refill, urine output, but you want to kind of really carefully look at all the things you would normally look at for fluid resuscitation and then treat accordingly. So you're not just going to um, like with your presumed sepsis patient, you're not just going to dump liters of fluids in there. It's going to be very careful and very considerate. And then this whole idea of a balanced fluid resuscitation. So you're going to want to do things. Um, saline may not be the best choice. Obviously, if that's what you have, that's what you're going to use. But things like lactated ringers and um, plasmolite, 
that have a little bit closer electrolyte numbers compared to your extracellular fluid, or it's going to be a little bit better. And they're considered um, renal protective. So a lot of these patients you're seeing have to go on renal replacement therapy and choosing the correct fluids could possibly help prevent someone from having to go on renal replacement therapy. And then obviously if fluid doesn't cut it and you have a hypotensive patient shock, you're going to have to use vasopressors, which is a you know, standard critical care treatment. The suggested first line is going to be norepinephrine, especially in an undifferentiated shock situation. So you have a COVID patient that comes in, you know they're hypotensive, but you haven't had the time to figure out exactly why. Is it their heart? Is it a PE? Is it it could be an, is it just hypovolemia? Is it sepsis? Um, while you're working that up, uh, recommended first choice is norepinephrine. Uh, second line, say you can't get where you're trying to get with your norepinephrine, they're going to recommend vasopressin or epi. Vasopressin is especially useful in your distributive shock. Um, epi is, has a little bit of inotropy so that it, it's a good for your cardiogenic shock. But again, if it's undifferentiated, you're just going to try and get them perfusing until you can figure out what's wrong. But once you differentiate that, so say you figure out they have a cardiac issue. So now you may want to add in like a, like a straight inotrope, like your dobutamine. So once you have it figured out what the problem is, then you can treat it more specifically. So you've done all your vent management, you've done everything you can to stabilize their blood pressure and the hemodynamics, and you've got, you're proning them, you're paralyzed them, you've got them on vasopressors, but you're just, you can't get there. Like their plateau pressures are high. You can't ventilate them. They've got this refractory issues with blood pressure. Do you put these patients on ECMO? And the answer is, as absolutely you can put these patients on ECMO. Um, they, it is, so some considerations for the COVID patient, it is um, super labor intensive, it's equipment intensive, not everyone has the capability. So if you don't have the capability, now you're looking at transporting this patient out. Um, if you do have the capability, now you're looking at um, a, pretty, a pretty intensive patient that's going to require a lot of time in the room uh, to take care of this patient. So, and then you also have to decide, there's, for those that know ECMO, there's two different types. There's veno-veno um, ECMO, which is going to be for your hypoxic patient or your hypercarbic patient that you're just not able to ventilate. And then, but if you've got um, a patient that's in cardiogenic shock with COVID, you may be looking at doing a veno-arterial ECMO that's going to support both the heart and the lungs. So there's just a lot of considerations when going on ECMO, but you're, these patients are absolutely going on ECMO and they're they're coming off and ECMO isn't going to, obviously it's not going to treat what's wrong with the patient, but it's going to give that patient the time that they need to recover their lung function and recover their heart function and hopefully get them off ECMO, get them off the ventilator and get them home. So we're just going to run through a couple of the questions that have come up for this presentation real quick. So what are some of the complications with using inhaled agents um, instead of your typical sedation medications? There's always the chance of malignant hypothermia with these agents, um, and that's just going to require careful monitoring of temperature and also differentiating between 
other things that may have caused the hyperthermia because they are septic and because um, they are running high fevers. It just requires careful assessment and monitoring. And then there's also a chance with some of them that could cause diabetes and septitis. So again, there are complications, but monitoring for them is what's going to keep your patients safe. There's also a risk of rebreathing if you have really low tidal volumes. So you want to kind of keep an eye out for that because then the patient can also become hypercarbic. And then our last question, uh, for patients requiring neuromuscular blockade, are infusions better than intermittent push dose? Um, this is a great question that applies uh, COVID, non-COVID. Obviously, if you can get away with intermittent push dose, you have less long-term complications. But a lot of these patients that are being proned, that just have horrible vent dyssynchrony, are requiring an infusion to keep them safe and also ventilate them. So it's, it's incredibly patient dependent. And then also if you're doing intermittent push dose, that's requiring you to enter the room more. So it's kind of weighing what's going to be safest for the patient and what's going to be safest for the nurse. And if you can do the intermittent push dose, sometimes patients may just need a few of them to kind of get them, get them over the hump, then obviously that's going to be better for them, but you don't want to not give them the infusion if that's what they need. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to come and talk to you about um, critical care management of the COVID patient, and I hope you all get a lot out of this presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Erin, for that useful information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to assess for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q's in question, A is an answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.